Good to see more people in the front row since last time I was up here. Well, good morning. I do want to um, give you one other quick announcement here, too, as we were just thinking about, um, Ian was talking about the um, the prayer uh, goals that we have for this year. Um, in, in, in one of them, we talked about that the influence of this gathering would increase worship um, across not eight, seven, right, uh, seven churches of Revelation. And in three weeks from now, uh, the songwriters in our community have, are going to write a song for each one of those. And so they're going to be introduced, and we're going to spend a gathering singing around and thinking through the, uh, the different churches and how God has molded and moved. And so, um, so that's coming, and so just be ready for that and be excited about that. Um, I know I am. Um, and uh, the next couple of weeks, Jeff is going to teach, and then Jared is going to teach. And so we got a couple more. Um, but I want to I begin um, today by reading um, from Revelations 2. Um, and I'm going to ask if you'd stand today. One of the things in church tradition is sometimes they would stand for, God's, for the reading of God's word. And so we're going to do that today. I know that's not what we usually do, but we're going we're to do that today. Um, so Revelation 2, um, verses 12 through 17 says this. And to the angel of the church in Paragon write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some who hold their teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also have some of you hold to the teaching of Nicolaitis. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to these churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manner and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone that no one except the one who receives it. Our Father, we thank you that uh, through your spirit we get to hear your words. We get to hear the words of Jesus at this church that, that you, would, um, you would open our ears, that you would open our hearts to teach us and to mold us into your image. Lord, I thank you that we get to gather in this place and we get to talk about your word this morning. And so Lord, we ask, would, would you please teach us this morning? Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're on a, a, a series on the seven churches of Revelation. And today I want to talk about the church in Paragon. Um, and just as a way of review, as we look back uh, into church history, what we see uh, is that when the book of Revelation was written, uh, John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, Part of really Jesus' inner circle, um, you want to say Jesus' DNA group, if you want to say it that way. Uh, the one at the cross that, that Jesus looks at as he's being crucified, and, and he said he appoints him to look after his mother. This is John. John, Jesus' dear friend, in many ways his kid brother. Um, and really he's the only disciple of the twelve that's left. All the other have died brutally. Um, and they've, in fact, they've tried to kill John by boiling him uh, in, in a, a vat of hot oil. Um, but he doesn't die, and so they exile him to this island, uh, the island called Patmos. And so John is all alone on this island, this prison island, um, 
And what we see is that Jesus still cares for him. He still loves him. He still sees him. And Jesus pursues John. And he comes to him in, in, in this state. And he gives John a vision, really a future hope of what, what it's going to look like when he returns. And he gives John a specific message for seven churches. Seven churches that were part of modern-day Turkey, the region of modern-day Turkey. And as we see these, these churches, these, these messages were not just for these churches, but they were, they were for God's church, for God's people. Because all throughout history, the church, God's people, has struggled through the same thing and the same issues that we see in these seven churches. And so one of those cities that Jesus writes to here um, through John is the city of Peregrine. And we're going to talk about that city today. So just a little bit about that city kind of give you some, some overview. It was built on the top of a mountain, um, and it's, uh, it was about, about 1,000 feet up, which, is, which is, doesn't sound that high, but it's high for that region, so it's kind of a high place. Um, and in its day, it's kind of hard to tell exactly how many people were there, but so somewhere between 60,000 and 150,000. Um, so it was, a, it was a large city for its time period, um, and it was a very strategic city um, for many reasons, and, and really as we see the Christian church persecuted um, and spread out. Peregrine becomes one of those places that really becomes a sending center for missionary work, just like in Ephesus, like we had talked about earlier. Um, and so this city being, being one of the high points in the city, you could see all over the whole valley and, and for very far from that. So it made it almost impenetrable, um, so almost unable to be conquered because you could see you could see your enemies coming from a long ways, and it was a little bit off of the ocean, so they would have had to come through other cities to get there. And so, so it made it a very safe place to live. It was a very safe city to live in. Actually, Alexander the Great um, stored what's estimated about billions of dollars of gold in the city because it was that safe. And so as we, as we think about that and we kind of surmise that, that it was a very affluent city, it was a city that had had lots of money, and the way that, that cities back then would work was that, that the wealthy, affluent cities kind of lived in the, uh, citizens lived in the city on the top of the mountain, and they would enjoy the views and the safety of all that they would provide, and then the commoners, the, the, the peasants, they would live down the hill in the valley, um, kind of in the shadow of that thing, and then sometimes they would come up for significant events, or they would come up for work, but they would kind of spend their time in different areas. So inside the city, is, there's also this large amphitheater, um, about 10,000 seats, where they would hold lots of plays and lots of entertainment um, of, of all sorts of kind. And so, so there's this city that's on this top of this hill, and, and, and one of the things that they believed back then was that the, the higher you are, the closer you would get to the gods. And so because it was the high point in the region, it became a place where they would build many, many temples. And it was a, it was a center for, for a lot of worship. There were over 50 gods or goddesses that were worshipped um, in temples in this city. And so there was, there, was a, there was a temple of Zeus there. There was a, there was a temple of Athena, who was the goddess of wisdom. There's the, there was a temple for the goddess of wine. Was it, I don't know, maybe it was a California wine. I don't know what they were making there, but, but it was probably good. It was, it was a place where, where people would come and enjoy wine together. Um, and so um, one of the things, too, we talked about earlier that... Um, it was, also, it was also a center for the worship of the Roman emperor. He had, at this time, he had declared himself God, and in need of being worshipped, usually they would die, and then someone would declare them a God after that. But he, he said, I don't, I'm not going to wait for that. I'm going to declare myself God now. And so he had a temple there for himself. And, and if you didn't worship him, you would be killed. And so, so it was a place where, where many sacrifices were made, many gods and goddesses were worshipped, 
And people would come there for, for drinking parties or for prostitution or for entertainment or for shows or for music. In, in many ways, it was, it was kind of a bit of a party town. If you want to think about it, it was, it's kind of like the Las Vegas of, of Turkey. You want, to, you want to think about it that way. People would come there to do all kinds of crazy things. Um, what's also unique about this area is, is just a little bit down the hill, um, um, and I'm not even going to attempt to, to tell you the name of this place, but um, the name basically means healing. So there was a place about halfway down the hill that they called healing, um, and there was, it was kind of like an, an a, maybe the, basically one of the first spas in the history of the world. And so they, they had all kinds of different treatments there. They had, they had dream therapy, and they had music therapy. They had sleeping chambers that were underground that they would use for water therapy. Um, and there was also one spring there that they actually, many people believed that was the fountain of youth. And so they had this place of really alternative healing and, and probably different essential oils and, and all, who knows all that kind of crazy stuff. I don't, I don't use any of those things. But my daughters came back from Pennsylvania this past week, and Jocelyn has had something on. And I'm like, what is that? She's like, oh, it's for, um, it's for paying attention or something. I was like, okay. I was like, she got it from there, from someone there. I don't know. Anyway, they, it was that kind of stuff going on there. Um, they also, in, in, this, in this place, in the spa, they, they, had a, they had another auditorium there that would seat about 3,500 people who would come in to listen to lectures and to learn about the different things of healing. And so you have this kind of crazy dynamic of, of wealthy people at the top of the hill and a bunch of hurting people kind of halfway down the hill and kind of the convergent of those two things and people coming to the healing center to be healed where they would seek to an alternative treatment for whatever ailed them. And probably those wealthy in the city would come down to, to do spa stuff. And so one last note about this city. I know this is a long lead-in, but we're just going to get to it today. Uh, they also had perfected the method of making paper and parchment. And so they had written a bunch of books. And so because it was a wealthy city and because they had kind of uh, uh, invented this, this method, it was a city that housed one of the largest libraries of the time with over 200,000 books. That's a lot of books um, for them. And actually, if you look back in history, it, um, when Mark Anthony comes in and conquers this city, he takes all of the books and he gives them to Cleopatra as like a love gift. Um, and so but anyway, it was, a, it was a safe city, it was a wealthy city, it was an inventive city, it was an intellectual city, it was a very religious city, it's a place of diverse worship and diverse healing um, and, and all kinds of things. And, and the church there, as we read, um, had been affected by many of the things that were taking place in the city. And so Jesus comes to John and, and he says, write down the things and, and send this letter to them. And, 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 and this is what I want you to say. I, I want you to say, I've been watching you. I've been paying attention. I've, I've seen what is going on. And I, and I want to speak into your lives. And so what we see Jesus say in the very first, first few verses is that he says, I know the trials that you've endured in this city. I know the persecution you've endured, both physical and spiritual. In verse 13, he says this, I know where you live. I understand the dynamic of the city that you live in. I know where you live. I know it's where Satan's throne is. Basically, I know it's a hard city for you to live in. It's the place of Satan's throne. He says this a couple times in, in, in these verses. This is where Satan's throne is. There's, there's many different interpretations of, of what that means, but I, I think it's actually a combination of all of them. Um, a place uh, that is, is Satan's throne. I think if you just 
think right down the hill to the, to the healing center. They had, they had many oracles, many people who would interpret dreams, many people who were involved in, in the magic arts or astrologers, people who would, who would come to hear from, from a collection of really demonic-inspired leadership. And so I think there's a piece of that. Also, if you look at the, the, the city, there was a very large uh, statue at the very, very top of the city, at the highest point of the city, there was a statue of the emperor uh, on, on his throne. And, and also at the very top was the, was the city, was the altar to Zeus. And, and that overlooked the entire valley so, so people could see it from a long distance. This magnificent uh, structure was built um, for the ruler of the gods and, and the ruler of the then world Caesar. And so so their, the worship of their thrones overshadowed the city and overshadowed the region. I think what's kind of interesting part of, of history here is that, that this, this, uh, this altar, this temple of, of Zeus, um, was actually captured by the Germans. And, and Adolf Hitler himself comes and he gives a speech from that place, from, with that place, with the temple in the background. This may be a little bit too much Indiana Jones for you, but, but after some archaeologists believe this, that they say that after Adolf Hitler actually captured that, the altar of Zeus, he actually had an architect draw the picture of that, and then it, uh, he built his own personal pulpit uh, based on the altar of Zeus. And, and I've got a couple pictures for you up here. You can kind of look at them and see. So this is like a, a model of what the temple of Zeus looks like, and you can put the other one up, Ellie. This is, this is Hitler's temple. And so you kind of have the same kind of like feel. And so um, whatever it is, the, the truth is that we're not sure exactly what the throne of Satan is. But the point is that this city was a place that all throughout history where demonic activity took place and where fervent worship of everything else and, and human leaders, not God, was often uh, what take place there. And so people would travel for miles for, for spiritual healing and for um, for consultation and for, for alcohol consumption and for prostitution, not to find Jesus. And so it was a place where Satan, Satan dwelled. It was, it was a place of Satan's throne, a stronghold for Satan. And Jesus says to this church, in, in really in loving care, I, I know where you are. I see where you're living. I know it's a very, very difficult place. I know where you live, the spiritual battle is great. That, that you, the church, my people, live in the center of demonic activity. I know you're being oppressed both, both physically and spiritually, and you're suffering greatly. And I, I think it's just it shows God's care for these people. And, and I want to stop for a second, and I say, as I think about this, there's a lot of similarities, um, not, not all of them, but there's a lot of similarities with the city that we live in. City of Los Angeles, the city of angels, right? Angels in the city are not some white, fluffy angels. They're, they're, the angels in the city are, are Satan's angels that seek to destroy the name of Jesus and to promote worship of everything other than the true God who is truly on his throne. And, and I want to make sure that we understand this. Don't be deceived. There is a spiritual battle. There's a real spiritual battle that's going on here in the city, in the city of Los Angeles. The city of Los Angeles has been a stronghold for Satan for many, many, many years. There's many places that you go in this city and you can actually feel the darkness. You can, it's, it's palpable. There's, there's many times as we moved here and that we've had to pray over our home and over our children. And there's, there's a lot of demonic activity that goes on in this city that we don't see at times. 
And, and I want to say that, that my guess is that just like, just like in our city, the attacks against the, the church here and, and came in many, many ways. It, it came in discouragement. It came in the lack, discouragement of the lack of converts. It came in sickness. It came in depression. It came in anxiety. It came in, in cultural pressures to conform to something else. And God says to them, and he, God says to us, I see you. I know you. I see your faithfulness. I see, I see where you live. And the good news is that, that I've come to overcome the world. You see, the good news is that amid the lies of this city here and our city, Jesus is actually the one that's on the throne. He's more powerful than the demonic forces that, that were involved in that city, and he's more powerful than the demonic forces that are involved in our city. And God loves his church and cares for his people, and he sees and he knows where we are. And he's more powerful than that. Verse 13 goes on, and he talks about the, their faithfulness. He said, even in, in the hardest times, during the days of Antipas. Now, Antipas um, was was a physician. So he was a doctor. I guess he, maybe he was involved in the healing center down there. There's a lot of doctors in there. And, and apparently he was suspected of secretly um, propagating Christianity and actually casting out demons. And so the members of the medical guide, a guild come together, um, and Antipas, um, and they accuse him of disloyalty to Caesar. Uh, and since really he was saying that Jesus is the true king, not Caesar being the true king, and, and upon him being, con- he's condemned to death. And Antipas is taken, and he's placed inside of a, a copper bull, and then that bull is heated up until he's fried to death. It's like putting him on a hot skillet. They put him inside this bull, and they, and they, they just cook him to death. A horrible, terrible, painful death. And as I think about this death, it's, it's directly related to other worship that's going on in the city. It's directly related to the worship of Baal. Usually the worship of Baal is depicted um, by, by a bull. We see the golden calf with the children of, of Israel. Um, we also see in this passage Balak, who um, was a Moabite king, and he's talked about in the next couple of verses. And, and one of the things that, that he would promote alongside of the worship of Baal um, is that he actually promoted um, child sacrifice. So to a way to appease the God of fertility, they had this altar that had basically these big hands on it, and they would place babies in it, and then they would heat that up until the hands got red hot, and babies would cook to death. And, and so we have this, this kind of death of Antipas, and it's, it's kind of an honoring of these other gods, of, of just um, cooking himself inside of this, 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 this brass, this, this bronze, whatever it was, bull. And, and it's this terrible thing that, that we see take place. And we see here that, that the people, the church of the city, the church of Peregrine, um, sacrifice Antipas in a way to really appease their gods, to, to show their gods that they love them. And in verse 13, it says this church really endured faithfully in the times of Antipas. This, this word, the times of Antipas, suggests that it wasn't just, he wasn't the only one that was martyred. That most likely this is a season, an intense season of widespread persecution and murder of Christians. And Antipas is really maybe just the face of, 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 that, of that predominant time. He was maybe one of the most outspoken ones or the ones that, that, the, that the community that abroad would know who he was. Interestingly enough, too, this name Antipas actually means one who suffers in the place of others. That's what his name means, one who suffers in the place of others. So we're not sure, but, but maybe, uh, maybe he willingly was killed to save others. 
We don't know that for sure, but, but he was obviously loved by the people, and, and he served as a great testimony of faithfulness despite the cost of his own life. And as I, as I think about that, one important um, thing is here, Jesus knows this man's name. He wasn't just some obscure person that was in the city. Jesus specifically knows who he is, and he calls him out, and he, and he shows his love and his care, his intimacy, Jesus' relationship with his church and with his people. And I want to say, Jesus knows your name. Jesus knows the name of, peop- of his children, and he specifically cares for us and knows them. And, and the good news is that the name of Antipas means that suffering in the, in the, in the place of others, but Jesus actually did suffer in the place of another. He suffered in our place so we would not have to endure eternal pain and eternal burning and and instead are able to live with the Father and enjoy life abundant, both now and in the future. And So we have this this church that that the struggle for them is real. It's intense, it's spiritual, it's physical. And in verse 14, we see that that although they have remained faithful in many areas, um, the culture of the city, the many things that we talk about, the dynamic of that city are starting to affect them. And as Jesus sees their, their faithfulness, he also sees their sin. When I say that for you, Jesus sees your faithfulness and he also sees the things that are going on in your life. He sees the things that, that are affecting us from the outside, the ways that they're departing from the truth. I think this is important because I think what often happens is when our life gets hard, or when, when we struggle, or when we're suffering um, for being a Christian, or, or, or being a Christian has cost us some relationships with others, or maybe it's cost us a job, or maybe it's cost us family members, um, and there's been some painful consequences that go along with that. I think we can fall into this trap that because we've suffered in some way, that we have the right to just rebel a little bit. We have the right to kind of rebel a little bit more. I think we can sometimes see it as a sliding scale. That like, oh, I'm suffering over here, so now I'm, I'm, I'm not that bad. I can do some of these other things. And Jesus says, no, don't do that. I acknowledge, I understand the city. I understand the complex um, variables and the place that you live and you minister. But then, nonetheless, don't use that as an excuse to sin. Don't use that as an excuse to rebel against my ways. And so he comes alongside them, and he both comforts them, and he also rebukes them. He calls them, he corrects them back. He corrects their incorrect belief, and and really an incorrect belief that that's resulted in behavior in their life. In verse 14, he goes on, he talks about the ways that they're holding on um, to believing the false teaching of Balaam. If you remember um, Balaam, um, and this is a lot of history today, but it's all good, Um, if you remember back, Balaam is in the book of Numbers. He was a prophet of God who, who out of greed, um, um, was conspired with the king of Moab um, to, to put a curse on Israel. And as he's on his way to do that, God uses his donkey to talk to him. And instead of, um, instead of continuing to do that, Balaam instead turns and doesn't curse Israel. But he does advise um, Balak, who was the king of Moab, to tempt the nation of Israel with immoral acts and the worship of Baal. So he doesn't curse them, but he says, this is how you can defeat them. Tempt them with this. They'll fall into that. And so what Jesus is saying to this church is is that although there are people here claiming to belong to God, they claim to speak to God, they claim 
Um, they claim God, but they teach things that are contrary to the Bible. And often that results in sexual immorality. I think if you go back and you study every cult, every um, um, religion and history of the world, almost every alternative spirituality or religion includes sexual sins being permitted by religious leaders and, and being perpetrated by religious leaders. And the city of Pergam was full of temples with prostitutes, full of, of places where people would come and engage in, in sexual activity as part of their spiritual worship. And so Jesus is saying to people who, who claim to be of me have fallen into a lie. And they're walking away from my idea of holiness in the area of sex. And we did a whole, last summer, we did a whole series on biblical sexuality. And you can go back and listen to that and, um, and think through those things. But there, there's, there's one of the things that we said and we kept coming back to was that, that one of the ways of walk, when we start walking away from the truth of God, it starts to allow our heads to justify and desires of our sinful hearts. And that often leads into sexual issues. I think besides money, sex is probably the next largest area in our life where we rationalize and we justify and we fall into cultural beliefs um, as we hold them higher than the truth of God. The the bigger word for this is, is apostate. Really believing, professing faith, but living in another way. An apostate is someone who, who calls himself a Christian, but they live contrary to the teachings of the Bible. Someone who has been, who has been taught the truth of God, um, but they openly live in rebellion, um, and yet they still claim Jesus. So as you think about this idea of apostate, well, what are some ways that this plays out in the church today? What are some ways that this plays out in the church today? What do you think? What do you think that would look like? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. They, they call themselves this with that, but then they're still living together and they're, they're, they're outside of God's plan for that. Yeah, good. How else? Yeah, anytime we're worshiping something other than God and we're living outside of our identity and, and saying that's more important. Yeah, good. Yeah, what else? Yeah, picking parts of the Bible that you want and throwing the other pieces out for sure. Yeah, good. Yeah, when, when we basically put our fingers in the ear when our spirit is talking to us and we don't. We choose not to do that and go on with our own life. Yeah, good, good, yeah. Yeah, having a dualistic life, right? In, in one setting, I, I act like this. In the next setting, I act like that. Yeah, I, I think many times, it, right? I, I, I see this often. I grew up in a Christian family, but I don't live that way now. Um, but I still claim Jesus. Or, or people that, that say, like, I'm walking away from my, from my marriage I, I don't love them anymore. I don't care what God says. I want my own happiness. And you would ask them, are they a Christian? They go, yeah, I'm a Christian still. And so there, there's many pieces of life that we walk in apostate. I think often, um, as Amy was talking about this, this happens doctrinally, where many people find parts of the Bible that they don't like. And so they basically just reject those teachings. And, and, and usually, when that happens, there's, there's some kind of moral cause underneath and often it's sexual. I think it's exactly what Romans 1 says. It says they, they suppress the truth of unrighteousness because they want to sin. You see, it's so easy to fall into the truth that, that, um, that, 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 that I don't think, it's not that we don't understand the Bible. It's that we want to do something different. 
This is exactly what's happening in the city. Lots of apostate, lots of leaders who were teaching false doctrine. They were encouraging sexual sin. There were lots of people that were saying, well, I like their version of that. I like their version of Christianity because it doesn't command me to repent. It tolerates my lifestyle. Not only does it tolerate my lifestyle, it affirms my lifestyle. And so when we do this, what we're really saying is that that we don't exist to glorify God. God exists to give me permission to do whatever I want. That's really what we're saying when we live this way. And as we think about this in our own context, and we think about how this plays out in our own lives, in the life of our city, I want to give us a few questions to kind of prostate, prostate, process. <laughs> that may be one of the worst, like, faux pas I've ever made. Yeah. I should have just gone on. No one would have recognized it. Yeah. All right, so here we go. We're going to prostate something here. Um, I want to give you some questions to process um, in your own life to diagnose this. This, this problem. Maybe I should just stop. I don't know. Um, all right, keep going. All right, number one, here we go. These are some questions to ask, to think about this as you, as you process this in your own life. Um, is your identity formed more by Christ or by the culture? Is your identity formed more by Christ or by the culture? Is the way that you think, the way that you live, defined by who God is and what he's done and what he says about who you are? And are the areas of your life and the way that you think and the way that you live defined by that? Or are they defined by the culture around you and the way that the culture views them? So is your identity formed more by Christ or by the culture? Number two is this. Are you compromising sexually? Sex is an act of worship. It's not just a physical thing. It's also a spiritual thing. It's why Romans 12 says, offer your bodies as living sacrifice as an act of worship. It's an act of worship. If you're compromising sexually, you may confess Christ as Lord, but you're collaborating with the enemy. Because sexual sins is one of the ways that we practice apostasy. It's, but it's saying one thing, but living another so if you're, if you're living together, if you're sleeping together before you, you get married, if you're looking at porn, if, if, you're, if you're watching sexually graphic shows on TV or movies and thinking that you can handle it, you may be on the path to apostasy, just like the people of Peregrine. And so ask the question, are you compromising sexually to what God has called us to, the purity and the holiness that he's called us to? Third one is this, are you compromising doctrinally? I think this is a big one that really leads into the first two. Because the truth is that, that much of the Bible is hard to read for us. There are many things that it says that are unpopular, that are controversial in our culture, and you will want to reject them. We don't like it because it says we're wrong. I don't like to read that and say, That's the, I'm wrong. It says we need to change our mind about things. It says we need to change our behavior. And that word repent that Jesus uses here in Revelation 2, um, it really talks about a change of mind and a change of heart, a change of direction, a change of behavior in your life. And so I want to ask, are there any places in in the Bible that you're actually suppressing the truth of God's word? Or you're rejecting his truth so that you can then justify your life? So you can justify the way that you live. That's compromising doctrinally. 
that leads to claiming Jesus, but living, not living the life of Jesus. And what does Jesus say to all this? He comes back and he invites you and I and this church. He says, he says turn and repent. He says, repent. He says, turn from the sin and believe what I say. And this is not just an academic exercise we hear, um, that we would just think something and, and do something differently. In verse 17, it says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus says this many times in Revelations 2 and 3. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's saying to us that, that how we fall out of fall away and we become apostate in our beliefs and behaviors is because we've stopped listening to the Holy Spirit. Like Jared said, we've we've put our fingers in our ears. We've stopped listening by by not reading what the Holy Spirit has has said to us in his scriptures. So we we just stop stop, stop reading the Bible because it's it's too hard to read. We stop listening through prayer. We, we, ne- we neglect listening in the everyday relationship with the Spirit, where He leads and He guides and He instructs. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. He went to the cross in the power of the Holy Spirit. He defeated death in the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything He did was in the power of the Spirit. And what Jesus is saying to us in this verse, He's saying this here is, is to walk like me means to walk with your ear in tune with the Spirit, to keep your ear open, to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you and saying to us as a church. And the good news is that like we see in verse 17 is that when we repent, Jesus is the one who actually gives us new ears to hear. It's okay. Yeah. Um, as I was he says that he's going to give us new ears to hear. That, that he'll, he'll give us hidden manna, it says. There's this idea of hidden manna is that, that he's the provider. That he's giving provision where there seems to be no way of provision. No possible way of provision. And um, just like he did with the nation of Israel. They're out in the middle of the wilderness and there's no food for them. And he provides for them when there seems to be no way for them to eat. He'll give you a hidden manna. Uh, hit a manna. And it says, he'll give them a, a, a white stone with a new name. Back in those days, as you would stand before a judge or a magistrate, and you were up for, for, for criminal behavior, and they were going to render a, a verdict, what they would do, they had a black stone and a white stone. And you would be given one at the end of the trial, after your case was made. And if you were given a black stone, you were declared guilty. And if you were given a white stone, you were declared innocent. And so Jesus is saying that because of my death, because of my resurrection, those who repent, those who see their need of me, are now given a white stone. Given provision when there didn't seem to be any way for it to be provided. And you were given a white stone. You were given, you were declared innocent. You're given a new freedom in my name. And now you have a new name. That this idea is that, that not only did Jesus die and rise to forgive your sins, but to make you different, to give you a completely different life, to make you a new people. You're not just a forgiven version of yourself. You're a forgiven and changed version of yourself. You have a new name, a new identity, an identity that's altogether different. It's, you're, you're no longer defined by what you've done in the past or what you do now or what's been done to you. You're, you're defined now by what Jesus has done. 
you're clean, you're loved, you're forgiven, you're made new. The old nature is gone, and the new nature has come in. And the Holy Spirit now empowers you and gives you the, the ability to do these things, and not only to do them, but to desire the things that, that, that you never desired in the past. And, and the things that you desire, that, that you used to desire that you never longed for anymore. That the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in, in your life and God has given you a new name. He's caused you to be a different person. And can I say, that's really good news. It's really good news to me. I, I have a new name. And when you look back through church history, oftentimes, even as we see in the Bible, as people came to Jesus, they would have new names. Like Saul was changed to Paul. Abraham was changed to Abraham. There's so many, they're given new names when you walk with God. And God has given you a new name, a new identity, a, a, a new, you're a new person in Jesus. And, and as we look at this church and, and the call for them to repent, it's the same for us. But to look and to see Jesus for who He truly is. As, as we are struggling with apostasy in our life and things that we don't want to live out, that we don't want to believe, that we don't want to walk in. We don't just need some new thinking or, or, or some new behavior modifications that you know, put some filter on your computer or whatever. You need a bigger picture of Jesus. You need a clearer picture of who God is. Jesus is not just some humble, marginalized Galilean peasant who had some insightful things to say. He's the crucified, risen Lord, the God and Savior, the one who's actually on the throne. The one who's actually the ruler of all the people, of all times and of all places, and who can actually declare himself to be God. He can actually declare himself worthy of worship because that's what he is. He's the one that's all-knowing, that knew what was going on in that church, and he knows what's going on in us. He knew what was going on in the life of the people, and he knows what's going on in the whole part. He knew the false teachers. He knew the sexual sin. He knew the life of every person in that city. And can I say, he knows the life of every person in this church. And he knows the suffering. He knows the, the, the ways, the places that we live, and the hard things that we struggle in. And he also knows the areas of your life that you're departing from history. And he's still the same one today. And he sees you and he sees me and he calls us in. He's after the purity of his bride. And the good news is he's given his people a new name, a new identity. And the Holy Spirit now empowers us to live in a new way. To see the truth of those things. To take the, the wax out of our ears and to speak truth so that we would then believe the good news of Jesus. So that we would then believe the gospel and that we would hear it as good news. And that we would repent, and that we would return, and that we would love others out of the great love that God has loved us. And, and we, would, we, would, we would give grace to people because God has been gracious to us. That we would serve each other as family because God has made us and served us as a family. That we would be all about talking about who He is all the time because He's so great and He's so much better than anything else the city offers. And that's the word to this church. As, they, as they're in this hard, hard city, God is saying, I'm better than all that other crap. It's nothing compared to my glory and the things that I can give you. And I want to say, God says that to us. There are so many things in this city that seem attractive and that are fun to do and that are, that are cool and that people worship. 
And it is a bunch of crap. I want to say something else. But... <laughs> because that's what it is. I've already said prostate, so I might as well say that. That's what it is. That's what it is. It's a bunch of that. It's just rubbish. And God is saying to you, see me. I see you. Open your ears. Listen, here I am. See, have a new vision of who I am. So I'm going to pray, and then Jeff's going to come up and lead us in communion. Our Father, we thank you that because of Jesus, we get to now see you, that you have opened the blinders of eyes. Lord, we pray that you would, you would continue to remove the scales of our eyes so that we would see you more. Lord, that you would, you would clear out the wax in our ears so that we would hear your voice more. Lord, we ask that you would do that not just for us, but for many people in the city. Lord, we ask that you would grow your kingdom here. That you would start many churches. That you would would save many souls. That that your people would live and be discipled in their ways and and walk as as holy as you are. Lord, Lord, we know we, we need a fresh vision of who you are. So Lord, I pray that that vision would be renewed in our hearts this morning and that you would call us into repentance in areas that we are in desperate need of being changed. So Lord, we thank you that, that not only do you call us to that, but you provide a way for it and, and that you are the one that actually offers those things. So Lord, we know that you are able to do those things and even more than we can imagine. So Lord, we ask that you would do that. Lord, we ask that you do that in our own hearts, that you would restore the brokenness, that you would remind us that we're loved and cared and seen and, and, and part of your children, and that you would, you would open up our eyes to see you. Pray these things in Jesus' name.